Uh, started last week by looking at Ephesus, and there was quite a lengthy introduction. We had to really introduce the book. There's a, quite a bit uh, behind the book of Revelation that we need to look at. Um, but we did that last week, and uh, so we're going to jump right in to the church in Smyrna. And that's uh, Revelation 2, starting in verse 8. And uh, before, as you flip there with your Bibles, uh, I've just got a little bit more intro stuff to do. So, Last week, we looked at the book of uh, the church of Ephesus and the issue that they had. They had really great theology. They really believed in God, and, and they believed in some great doctrine. But they just weren't passionate about God anymore. The, the, the author says, you've lost your first love. Where you used to be passionate and have a lot of fervor, you've begun to die with just this great theology. And, and what a lot of commentators say is they begin to be inward-focused. And cha- churches actually need both. They need an inward focus and they need an outward focus. We need, to, we need to continue to disciple and to build those within our walls. Yet, we need to continue to reach out and reach the world for Jesus. But that was the church in Ephesus. So, as I started to read the church in Samaria and I started to study it, I got the, this question that just popped into my head. If we were to go church shopping today... How many of you have ever been church shopping? Just be honest. Go ahead. Have you ever been church shopping? How many of you are church shopping right now? Go on. Anybody? Okay. Nobody? Yes? Oh, no. Yeah, Ellis is. We're going to try and get you guys to come back. There's some great cookies if you would just fill out. You probably know all about the cookies. Um, in other words, what makes a good church? If we were to go church shopping, what would, what would we look for? I think this culture, even the phrase church shopping uh, speaks of some kind of marketing or speaks of of some kind of um, materialistic uh, desire. So even the phrase church shopping is a little bit suspicious. But in our culture, what would we look for? A children's department that's amazing, that has maybe slides or bounce houses or something, I don't know. Um, An amazing youth department, amazing teaching and and music ministries. by the way, while Lindy was gone, Scott, it's really good to have you here. Anyways, can we give Scott a round of applause? There's a lot of round of applause happening today. I don't see him. I don't know where he went, but Lindy's on vacation, so it's great to have Scott here with us. But as we uh, church shop, you begin to look for all these things. We, and, and the implicit theology here, not theology, but the implicit uh, mental state here is, what can the church offer me? What can they do for me? Well, as we look at this church in Smyrna, it was completely the opposite. It's it's one of the only two churches that Jesus actually praised. And it was the complete opposite. If you're going to be part of this church, be willing to give everything that you have. Be willing to give everything that you are. So if we were to go church shopping today in our culture, 2012, the, the answer to what a good church looks like is, is probably one that I could go and, and sit and don't have to, I could do relatively little and just sort of slide in and slide on out. That's probably what a good church looks like. But back here in, uh, in uh, the church in Smyrna, it's completely the opposite. So let's read Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is first and last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are the Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, 
and you will suffer through persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now, this is in kind of coded language, so we're going to have to break it down a little bit to understand what it is he's saying. But first, before we get in there, he writes to the angel of the church. And remember how we introduced that last week. There's three different ways to look at this word angel. One way is to look at it as the pastor of the church or a messenger, a physical messenger, a human. The other way is to say, okay, is there an archangel? But the third way to look at it, which is actually a little bit more accepted, we have some light to dim it up and down, that's okay. Um, um, we, the, the third way to look at it is uh, to like the makeup of the entire congregation. And that's probably the best way to look at these seven letters. So what's happening is, um, it's like if you put everybody in a blender and what comes out, that's who, that's who they're addressing, the collective conscience of your church. Collectively, what does this church look like? What does this church talk like? What does this church do? And so that's who he's addressing, to the angel of the church in Samirna. And so this represents everybody who makes up this church. It's the corporate culture. If you go into... Um, Companies spend great deals of money, uh, great amounts of money. I read the biography of Steve Jobs, and as soon as they figured out they were onto something at Apple, when he returned in the early 90s, he, he paid for a whole team of Harvard sociologists to come out and do a study to figure out what their corporate culture was, and then to write a manual to duplicate that corporate culture because it was working so well. So companies do this all the time. They understand there's a corporate collective consciousness. And what Jesus is doing here is addressing the whole church. Same thing. So let's go do a little bit of background in Smyrna so you can understand the rest of this text that we're getting at today. So, the city used to be ruled by a man named King Eumenides of Pergamon. Pergamon is the, the church that we'll look at um, actually next week. Uh, they got in a little bit of trouble with Jesus. We'll look at them next week. Um, the city of Pergamon is actually... Uh, uh, just right up the road from them, a couple hundred miles. And in any case, in 197 BC, so about 197 years before Christ, about, the city cut ties with the king of Pergamon and appealed to the king of Rome to come in and, and be there, be part of the empire. They wanted to be inducted into this, the, the country. Almost like, um, let's say, if Canada was like, hey, we want to be part of the United States. Um, probably won't happen. They would say, hey, you have better hockey teams. Anyways, that's probably what they would do. So they were among the first, because they wanted to be part of the Roman Empire so badly, they were among the very first people <coughs> that we even know about to actually institute emperor worship. And, and so before anyone else did it, they said, this, the emperor of Rome is a deity, they are God manifest, and so we are going to worship them. And so they were the first ones to do that in about 23 B.C. with, with the emperor um, Tiberius. They were a very rich part of the land. They, um, they exported myrrh. They were, that's what they were famous for. So if you were to go in the city, there would even be a rich fragrance in the city of myrrh. And the, liter the city was literally like the Beverly Hills or the Laguna Beach of its day. It was ritzy. They even had a highway. Um, not a real highway because cars weren't invented for a couple thousand years later, but they had a road which they called the Gold Road, and the Golden Road. And on this road were temples to Apollo, who was the god of truth, healing, prophecy, and, po and poetry. Aphrodite, 
the goddess of sex and fertility. Um, Asclepios, god of medicine. Zeus, father of the gods. And Sybil, goddess of mother of earth. So almost like mother earth there. And they worshipped all these different gods. There was really not a place for Christianity. And there was also synagogues in this place. Now synagogues really had kind of, they had, the, they had it made for them. Because in this town you had to worship the emperor. You had to worship the goddess Roma. You had to do it. And if you, what you did is you went in front of the magistrates every single year and you got a little piece of paper that showed you burnt incense, just a pinch of incense, that's all they required, and that you said, Caesar is Lord. And you had to audibly say it. They had to hear you say it, and they would sign their name and almost like notarize it, and you'd have a piece of paper that allowed you to buy and sell merchandise. And this is about 2,000 years ago. And they, allowed, they, they had you do this. So what happened here, and we read this, that the Jews were a synagogue of Satan, and we go, what is that? That seems a little bit intolerant. What's going on there? What was probably happening there is that Christianity flourished in, in the synagogue system. And it wasn't until 90 AD, so there's, we got to remember there's a time gap here, where Christians or people who worshipped Jesus were formally kicked out of the synagogues. So they, Christians worshipped with Jews all the way up until about 90 AD. In some places, synagogue leaders started to say, hey, you need to get out of here, this isn't right, you Jesus, we don't recognize him as the Messiah, and so they started kicking him out earlier than 90 AD. But one of the reasons why even this synagogue is addressed is because that's one of the earliest churches, is in synagogues. And it wasn't really formal until 90 AD, until they were kicked out. And so they call them a synagogue of Satan because what these Jews would do, they enjoyed the, the rare privilege of not having to worship Caesar. They did not have to offer a pinch of incense. They did not have to do everything else. They did not have to say Caesar is Lord. They understood that the Jews had a special privilege. So what the Jews would do is they would kick the Christians out. And then they would inform on them to the emperor or to the local council. And then the local council would begin to institute punishments. At first it started small. And then there was official persecution. And so this church is one that was hugely persecuted. Hugely. There are all a bunch of people who grew up as Jews and then heard this message of the Messiah. They heard some of Paul's preaching and, and probably some of Timothy's preaching. They heard this, and they began to grow. And they begin to say, wow, the Messiah has come. They didn't see it. As, we see Christianity kind of as a new thing, especially if you're born again or newly saved. But these people would have seen it as the fulfillment of thousands of years of history that the Messiah came to earth and they would have been shocked and blown away and they began to follow the teachings of the Messiah. So, um, this was the situation in Smyrna. You needed to gr agree with the culture. If you didn't agree with the culture, you'd have been persecuted. I think our world is much like Smyrna. We live in an increasingly... Um, a world that's increasingly defined by something called pluralism. And if you don't know what that means, it's simply kind of a general acknowledgement of diversity. But not just that. It's whatever it is that you're doing is right. So whatever it is your cultural background does, it's right because it's your background. So it's correct. And then there's this issue with the word tolerance. 
Now, tolerance used to mean, just, a, just maybe 50 years ago, it used to mean you have your idea, and while I disagree with you respectfully, I respectfully disagree with you, and here's my idea, um, we can still be friends. That's what tolerance used to mean. Now, tolerance is, this is my idea, and if you don't agree with me, you're intolerant. Right? Have we all dealt with that? I've dealt with that a number of times. That's not what tolerance is. That's demanding acceptance. That's something totally different than tolerance. But we, as a, as a community, as a culture, our culture demands tolerance. But what they're demanding is complete acceptance carte blanche. And they demand it from the church, they demand it from society, they demand it from the laws, they demand it from everybody. And that's the state of our culture, is one that demands this complete carte blanche acceptance of everything. Whatever it is I'm doing must be right, because I'm doing it. Um, I love Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. He says, you judge yourself against yourselves. I love how he says that. Um, in other words, you make yourself the own, your own standard. But what happens is, when this begins to happen, the church begins to get asked questions, inevitably. Will you begin to follow this, or will you begin to agree with this philosophy or theology? And the interesting thing to me about this church in Smyrna and our church here today, where there's some parallels, is society was going a certain direction and they said, no, we've got to stand up for what we believe in. And our church here today is getting constantly bombarded with these questions, not just of tolerance, but of acceptance. Because I think our church is very tolerant. One of the things that it says in 1 Corinthians is, is that we judge internally within our own church. People who accept Jesus, we ask ourselves these tough questions. We don't necessarily judge the outside world. We judge ourselves. And, and so I think the church in itself is a very tolerant institution, a very tolerant group of people. But we get demanded to have acceptance when what we really need is tolerance, the real definition of tolerance. So... Let me play out how, what this means for, and, and kind of a little bit what Jesus taught about this. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 real quick. And if you're following along on the, on the web, it's, um, it is, uh, it's in your notes. It should be right there. Right at the beginning of Jesus' sermon, where he's about to give his kingdom manifesto. Like, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. These are the ethics of my kingdom. This is what I want you to follow. He, he gives kind of this blessing that's mixed within this blessing, starting in chapter 5, verses 10, it says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you falsely, and say all kinds of evil because, uh, against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus starts the beginning of his ethics with, hey, you're going to get persecuted because of me. If you're righteous, if you're going to get persecuted because of me, because of some of these beliefs. And as we look at them, yeah, they're not very palatable for our, our current culture. And so one of the things that I want to do today is simply encourage us as a church to just simply stand up for what we believe in. Because if we stand up for what we believe in, we're inevitably... Going to, um, going to be uh, pushed back against. I'm not asking you to be um, a jerk. I'm not asking you to get in people's faces. I'm not asking you to put yard signs up or bumper stickers up. I'm not asking any of that. I'm simply saying 
that there's some stuff in the gospel that we continually have to stand up for as a church. We don't even know the type of persecution that the church was facing in Samirna. I mean, we're not even close to that. In America, we have such amazing privileges, and we have, Earl and I were talking this morning about this banner of American culture that kind of goes over us, and so there's this acceptance even within the church that we could hold the beliefs that we hold, that Jesus taught. But the question is, do we stand up for our beliefs enough? Does culture, do our families, do our friends know who we are because we stand on Scripture? Now, here's what I mean. Um, Where do we stand on speech, for example? Let me just read this this verse out of Matthew's, uh, out of what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard what it said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. I think we can all agree with that, right? Murderers are bad. Great. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says, brother, raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Let's not tell people that, okay? Let's just not, because it seems a little bit offensive. Um, They might not like us. No, we have to. I mean, we have to stand on Scripture. What it says is, if you are even angry with people, you're subject to judgment. And that brings up a whole other subject. It seems like God's intolerant because hell, right? Issues of heaven and hell. And in our culture, I think we want our buffet of religious belief. We just want to go like the hometown buffet. We'll take, oh, we'll take a little bit of Hinduism, a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Christianity. We'll pepper it all in with a little bit of Confucius or something. We want that buffet of religious belief. But Jesus talks about hell more than anything else in the Gospels. And so there is an eternal question here about what happens after we die. And it's like, should we show restraint to that? Should we stop preaching this? Should we stop talking about it? Absolutely not. Even though it's completely unpalatable for our culture. I mean, this is what the culture wanted the church in Samirna to do. The culture wanted the church to to just, just burn a little bit of incense. Just say, Caesar is Lord. Just go along with it. We don't want to persecute you. You're our friends. You're our family. We live with you. We don't want to kill you. Just say it. That's what they wanted. But the church here said, no, we've got to stand on the gospel. We've got to stand on our beliefs. One day an atheist cornered me. I was on a boat with my brother-in-law and his friend, who's a devout atheist, he told me. It was kind of funny. Um, It's not funny that people are atheists. It was funny the way he said it. We were on his boat, and we were all sitting out. We're in the middle of Lake Havasu. We're all sitting out in the water. And he says, so I'm an atheist, so you believe I'm going to go to hell? And I went, ooh, that's a tough question. Like, you're a pastor. You teach that, right? You teach that I'm going to hell. And I went, you know, my response to him was, I let God figure that stuff out. I'm just a pastor. But what do you teach? What do you believe? And there's just this world out there that wants us to make that concession and that compromise. But I said, yeah, we believe that if you have a relationship with Jesus and you go to heaven. I mean, if you believe if you're, if you're, if you're following Jesus, we, we believe that you've got to be sanctified. We believe that, that there's this new birth that happens when you get to know Jesus and he restores you. He, he, he changes your life. We believe all that. He dwells powerfully within you. But yeah, we believe that if people don't want to have a relationship with Jesus, then, then you don't go to heaven. Ah, that's tough to tell somebody to their face. Now, I'm not saying that you can walk around to your family and say, you know, 
you're going to hell. That's not what I'm saying to do. Not at all. What I'm saying is we need to stand on biblical belief. That's what the thing, Jesus praised this church because they stood on biblical belief and they stood on Jesus' word so powerfully and they wouldn't concede because they knew what was right and they even went to their deaths because of it. I mean, what is, the, the fact of the matter is the gospel is offensive. What does it say on enemies? You've heard what it said. Well, you've heard what it said. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I mean, it wasn't too many churches that called for prayer for the Taliban right after 9-11. And I understand. I mean, that's emotionally driven. That's very difficult. But should we be praying for them? Absolutely. Should we be praying for our guys? Absolutely. But the gospel's offensive. He was talking to a group of people that had these Roman people who were, who were fighting him and killing him constantly and saying, pray for these people. Don't fight him, pray for him. The gospel gets offensive. Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians that, and there's other spots in the Bible, he talks about sex before marriage being wrong. Not just wrong, but unhealthy and, and, and hurtful and harmful to your relationship. And there's actually a deeper, more spiritual significance, which actually in the fall we're going to cover all that. But it talks about there's deeper, more spiritual significance to all of it and how it harms you and, and, and things like that. And so as a church, we've got a call for our members to stay pure until marriage. We've got a call for our kids to do that. But you should go to a high school or even a junior high. That is not at all what is being talked about or taught. What I'm saying is in a world that is constantly going towards everything is permissible, everything is okay, we need to continue to stand on biblical belief. As each member does, I mean, it's tough, it's difficult, but we need to continue to stand there. And if you don't know a whole lot about biblical belief, I'd really encourage you to get into a Sunday school class, or I'd really encourage you to get into Earl's uh, smaller group or, or something like that. So do we believe stuff that offends the rest of the world? Yes, in a huge way. But we believe that we serve a God who is holy, a God who is pure, and a God who wants to give us second chances. And even, I was, I was reading even this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and, and, I, and I came across this for the 30,000th time. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And yet, that's what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, what I'm saying is some of us in this room came in this way. Some of us in this room came in broken. Some of us came in hurting, but we were washed, we were sanctified, we were cleansed by the Spirit of God. And so going back to Revelation chapter 2, to the angel of the church in Samaria, these are the words of him who is the first and last, who died and came to life again. Now, Jesus here accentuates his own death and life as a promise to them, the resurrection promise that you will go through the same thing I went through. I love how he doesn't tell the church, I'm going to just wisp you out of this situation. I'm going to just get you out of here, and, 
or I'm going to send an army and defend you. He basically says, you're going to die. If you continue to stand for me, you're going to die, but stay faithful to that. Blessed are you who are persecuted. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Now, the interesting thing about this church here is that they really were poor. In order to become a Christian, you were essentially becoming an outlaw. And you could not do business. So you, couldn't, you had to have this piece of paper that, you, that claimed that you said Caesar is Lord in order to do business. So these people were poor. These people were scrounging by. They were, they were living off of family and friends who would, who would go and get the piece of paper for them and, 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 then, um, and then feed them. I mean, but they were utterly poor. And in this time, people like Plato and Aristotle, these were the giants of the time said that if you're poor, that's something that the gods did to you because they wanted you to be the servant class. And so they were looked down on in society. And so Jesus says, hey, I know your affliction. I know that you willingly became poor to serve me. I know that you willingly became poor to defend the gospel. But I'm praising you for that. But you're a good church because you have done that. He says, you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. And that's where I told you before the Jews kicked them out of the synagogue and didn't protect them. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. And, and this is Jesus simply just saying, this is, you're going to die. Don't be afraid. He says, don't be, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will, be a, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Ten days being a Roman element of time, not necessarily ten days, but symbolic. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Every, almost every other church, except for one other, Jesus criticizes. Jesus says, hey, I hold, you're doing this well, but I hold this against you. You're doing this wrong. But this church, he fully praises. Not because it's the church when you go church shopping that has the best children's department, the best youth department, the best preaching ministry, the best worship ministry, uh, the coolest uh, marketing and all that stuff. But it's the church that give, all the members give of themselves to be part of this church. And that's what a good church looks like. That each one of us give of ourselves to be a part of this. Jesus simply said, be faithful to the point of death. Be strong. So I think the question for us is, will we water down the gospel, or will we stand on it? I'm not, like I said, I'm not asking you to, to get in people's faces. I don't think that that's right. I'm not asking you to put yard signs up. I'm not asking you to vote a certain way or do anything like that. I'm simply saying, will we stay strong in our belief on Scripture? I mean, even to the point where society, our church has a, has a belief um, based on scripture, based on a ton of scripture, a ton of it, not just a little bit, a ton of it, that marriage is between a man and a woman. And we're getting asked all the time, will we, will we change that belief? And we've got to stand on scripture on that one. Not that we don't like some other folks, we love everybody, but we've got to stand on scripture. Jesus called us to be a separate nation, a nation of priests. He said the entire church will be a separate, set-apart nation of priests. Will we be that? Will we be set apart? I think the best way to look at this church is from the uh, perspective of the Bishop Polycarp. Polycarp was a bishop who lived, um, I believe he lived right around 300 AD, and he came from this church. And he was martyred in this community. 
He was actually arrested on the charge of being a Christian, a member of a politically dangerous cult whose rapid growth needed to be stopped. Amidst an angry mob, the Roman proconsul took pity on such a gentle old man and urged Polycarp to proclaim Caesar as Lord. If only Polycarp would make this declaration and offer a small pinch of incest to Caesar. Caesar's statue, he would escape torture and death. To this, Polycarp responded, Eighty-six years I have served Christ, and he never did me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Steadfast in his stand for Christ, Polycarp refused to compromise on his beliefs, and thus was burned alive at the stake. Before he died, before everyone, he prayed that he would be an acceptable sacrifice to God. When he was thrown into the fire, the account the writer said that he was such a great man that, that there was actually an aroma of bread baking or the gold and silver being refined when he was thrown onto the flames. In so many ways in our society, it's too easy to be a Christian because we, can, we don't face persecution. We just don't face what they faced. And, and because we don't face what they faced, sometimes we don't stand for what we believe in that much. We don't have the opportunity. We don't need to. But I think it's time for the church, we're beginning to see a culture that's beginning to be so pluralized, so divided, so demanding of acceptance, that I think it's time to say, this is simply what we believe. And it's not because we don't like you, it's because we love you. We begin to live, I think we, sometimes we begin to live for ourselves instead of dying for the king. The church in Smyrna was one that gave much but required even more of its members. And this is the church that Jesus praised. No one, I'm sorry, um, not the one that had the sweetest children's program or the best uh, preaching ministry. The one that taught its members that in order to be fully alive, you must die to yourselves and your desires. I think it's interesting to note that there's some other churches that we're going to talk about that were just utterly doing the wrong thing. And they don't even exist. They'd stopped existing about 100 years after the letter was written. The church in Smyrna is actually, Smyrna today is actually 50% Christian. Because of that legacy of standing up for what they believe in. Maybe you're here today and you're convinced that you need to take the next step in your faith. Maybe that next step for you is simply to learn more about it and to begin to stand up more for it just in your own personal life. For me, I believe in Jesus. And I could list a litany of things that I believe and that I'll stand up for because it's based on Scripture. How many of us want to shy away from that conversation? It's a tough conversation to have. Again, it doesn't mean yard signs. It doesn't mean bumper stickers. It simply means for you, the next step would be to just simply stand for the gospel. I'm going to invite Scott and the band to play, uh, come and, and lead us again in worship. And as we think, as we close in prayer, and as we think about the church in Samaria that suffered so much, there's a church around the world that's being persecuted for the same thing. And other cultures that, that demand that they follow their way of life, they're saying, no, we believe in Jesus. We believe that Jesus saved us from death. We believe that Jesus brought us new life. We believe that Jesus can save you as well.
I think the question to us today is, will we be a church that stands with them? Will we be a church that stands up for people? Will we be a church that loves our enemies? Will we be a church that proclaims the gospel? Let's pray. Jesus, it's so tough to think about these churches. It's so tough to to think about sometimes we just sort of let some stuff slide. It's so tough to think about we let our own personal standards slide sometimes. But God, you're calling us to live by your standard. God, those who have said yes to you and have begun to follow you because of your redemptive love, we're called to live by your standard. So God, would you infect us with your spirit? God, would your Holy Spirit dwell in us in such a powerful way that we stand amidst persecution, that we stand amidst ridicule, that we stand against mockery, but God, that we would stand for you as a testimony to your great love and what you've done in our lives. In the name of Jesus, amen.